This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her In his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. Please be seated. I want to tell you a story about a superficial signal of peace and of calm. It was a couple decades ago when my best friend's family was uh, boarded up to go through Hurricane Andrew on the south side of Miami. And uh, my friend and his two parents lived at the end of a small cul-de-sac, across which lived a, a very elderly widow. And they had helped her board up earlier that day. They knew that she needed water and provisions and a radio and a flashlight. And she insisted on staying in her house, of course, wouldn't come over to theirs. Uh, But they promised they would go. And as the storm allowed, they would seek out to make sure that she was all right. And so, of course, this was a brutal storm, absolutely havoc wreaking. And for hours, it battered the area. Uh, High winds. Roofs came flying off, uh, cars and boats were moved, and they thought they would die. And eventually, calm came. And of course, radios were out, so they couldn't get a, a real sense of what was going on. They, they couldn't actually figure out uh, precisely how bad the damage was and what the forecast might be. But there was a calm of a few minutes, and so my friend's father... Sensing that peace, journeyed across the cul-de-sac. They opened up the double-bolted door, and he sprinted across to go check on their neighbor. And just as he made it about halfway across, the wind picked up. And the storm came back, and they realized that what had been a superficial sense of calm had been the experience of the eye of the storm. And he spent the next two hours hanging on to a banyan tree in the middle of a street, 
for his dear life, and they had to lock him out of the house, believing him to surely be dead. He made it. But that experience strikes me very much as what Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember, perhaps from last week, as Damien uh, led us into looking at the verses just prior to this, especially in Matthew 5.20, where Jesus speaks of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says to his disciples and to the crowd gathered there that your righteousness must exceed theirs. And it's all important to catch what he is and is not saying, to catch what he is and is not doing from Matthew 5, 20, all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 48, where he'll say, you, even as your heavenly father is perfect, so you should be perfect. And of course, some of us, for whatever reason, have gotten the impression that he's portraying the impossible ideal, that he's suggesting some sort of flaw, flawless goal, some sort of sinless perfection that the scribes and Pharisees failed at, and if we too will realize that we fail, then we can find forgiveness. That's a, a crucial idea, and that's a significant word that Jesus will offer elsewhere in the gospel, but that's not what he's saying here, and that's not what this sermon is about. This sermon is about a call to look beyond the superficial sanctification of what we can immediately perceive, to see a deeper call, not simply to external conformity, not simply to the most easy obedience, but to that costly and deep transformation. We so often speak here of how the gospel changes everything, the self, the community, even the city. We need to realize, of course, that 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 speaks into every nook and cranny of the self, every facet of our being. Jesus here is addressing the law that was summed up in Deuteronomy 6. Moses, speaking to Israel, said, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. In other words, if there aren't a lot of gods, if there's but one God, if there aren't a lot of people you turn to for life and blessing, but there's one Lord, then you surrender everything to him. Then you submit every area of your life to this one true Lord. No longer chasing after this one over here and that one over there as they did in Egypt where they pandered to the gods of various provisions nor turning after and running after the various gods of Canaan where they would soon be occupying the land. No, they're told there's one God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and so you submit your whole self, all that you have, to him in love. And that's what King Jesus, our rabbi and teacher here on the mount, is telling us. Like Moses of old, he's saying that we surrender everything. And in these verses, the first of a number of contrasts that we find from Matthew 5, verse 21 through verse 48, we see that he's getting at the need not only to submit in the superficial, but in the substantive. Not only in the external and obvious, but in the internal. Not only in the fruit, but with regard to the root as well. And so, as we seek to understand this call, as he addresses our anger 
and as he addresses our lust, as he points out, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, we want to catch what he's really about. You see, of course, in verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then again, at the end of our passage in verses 27 and 28, he addresses this other issue of lust. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's crucial to see that Jesus is not leveling the degrees of sin. He's not suggesting that thinking impure thoughts is as problematic as committing adultery or murdering someone. He's rather lengthening our expectations. He's not suggesting that somehow the, the thought of the mind or the feeling in the heart is as evil and as impactful as acting it out but he's suggesting that it is also a part of God's concern, that God is concerned not only with the fruits of external disobedience, but also the root of a heart that is sinfully and selfishly inclined, that God wants every facet of our being. God wants not only to change the way we act amongst one another, but also to change the way we are within and of course, Jesus comes back to this time and again in this gospel, does he not? When he addresses these scribes and Pharisees whose righteousness is too small, not because they sin too much, but because they write sin off. As if areas of life are kept from God and don't need to be submitted to him, don't need to be a, a cause for repentance and growth and prayer for the Spirit's transformation in our lives. Jesus will so often call them whitewashed tombs. Happy to make sure there's no murder on the papers. There's no adultery in the news. But dead within. Decaying, toxic inside. And Jesus says it doesn't simply matter that there's white on the walls. But that there's life in the home. And so here he addresses these two issues. As he will other issues in the, in the verses to come that we'll look at in the weeks to come. Suggesting that we need not to have a leveling as if somehow the, the murderer doesn't get punished any worse than the person who loses their temper. No, that's not what he's saying. But to realize that God's concern is as lengthy as we might imagine. God is concerned to address the way we stew within, the way we salivate in our hearts, just as he is concerned with the words we say, the actions we do in front of one another. Well, there are three ways that I think we see Jesus calling us not simply to express new fruit, but calling us to really get at the root of the matter, ways in which he calls us to transformation, not simply of action, but of being, not simply of obedience, but of the deep dependence that is really woven down deep into the fiber of our character. And the first thing we see here is that Jesus speaks to the prompts and the pangs of conscience that lead us to change. 
in verses 23 and 24, he speaks of this sense of disharmony with the rhythms of worship. It's rather remarkable. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, which you ought to do, and you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It speaks to this deep and profound sense that worship tells us what reality is like. We could speak of sort of a three-dimensional way in which, in which our, our weekly gathered worship is meant to recalibrate our sense of reality as our imaginations have gone haywire throughout the week from forgetfulness and conformity to false stories. But here we're called to look upward to see that God is at the heart of all things. We're called to look forward to see that there is hope in the gospel that we're being brought into through Christ. But we're also called to look beside us horizontally to see the brothers and sisters who were drawn together with, in and through that Christ and before our Heavenly Father. And Jesus speaks of how in this setting, as we experience this kind of worship, we will on occasion realize that we are living out of sync with that reality. And when that's the case, he doesn't say worship doesn't matter. He says worship ought to be expressed in harmony with enacted obedience and with righteous relationships. And so you go and you seek out reconciliation. Now, of course, worship can set false expectations. And there are horrific stories like that of South Africa where the, the false patterns and the loveless decisions of worship over a century ago where they separated and segregated worship by race eventually led to people looking down upon other races as being inferior, less human. And we saw that the debilitating cycle of apartheid flowed from this horrific imagination shaped first in bad worship. But we also see that as we are gathered together, as our imaginations are stirred anew to what's true and good and beautiful, we can start to see places in our lives where we don't live in loving and just ways. I'm reminded of another story of a, a pastor from Africa named Emmanuel Kattengill who went to serve, I don't know why, but he found himself serving in the American Midwest, out in the plains. He was serving a parish in a town where most of his congregants had never, ever met a man with deep, dark black skin such as himself. And he spoke of how alienating it was, how people did not know how to interact with him, how to look upon him. They weren't belligerent, they were absent to him. And he thought about and prayed about what on earth might he do as their pastor, not just as a random person who could go aside, but who's meant to call and lead them to love and to care and to celebrate the, the image of God in those who are different from them. And he realized pounding the pulpit probably wasn't the best pathway. And he observed that almost without intentional pursuit, people began over months to open up to him and to delight in him, and eventually to bring in others of backgrounds such as him, of, of skin colors such as his. Because they experienced over time, week after week, as we already have, the passing of the peace and the welcoming of brothers and sisters. And they realized that after looking him in the eye and shaking his hand or hugging him week after week in worship, that that ought to match up with behavior Monday through Saturday. 
But if in the Lord's house where reality is defined for us, they're brothers, then in the world where we go out to witness before others, things ought to measure up. And so that sense of disharmony led those men and women in that parish to begin living in a a juster way, a more loving way, a more selfless way, and to go through the difficult task of dying to self and assumptions and being open to the call of God. And Jesus says to us, when you feel that disharmony in worship because some relationship is fractured, that's a prompt from God to lead you to go repent. But he also speaks of the pangs of conscience. And he goes on here, we see in verses 25 and 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Your conscience is a great gift from God. And the scariest people are people whose consciences are seared, are they not? Those moments where there's no shame. Shame isn't pleasant, but shame can be a gift of God. Misplaced shame is horrific because it's disordered and it's debilitating. But appropriate shame where I sense that something is coming and results lead to a result that is not beneficial for myself, for my brother, or for my God, that's an appropriate reaction. Just like feeling the the fire upon your skin, that That sense of searing is not pleasant, but it is good because my hand needs to get out of the fire. And your nervous system isn't there primarily for your delight, but to keep you safe. So that when you're in a situation that's going to harm you, that's going to mangle you, you remove your hand. Your conscience here, the sense of, of results of sin, of anger, of lust, of the consequences that will befall you. Those are a gift of God. And they don't get at the deep issue, but they can jolt you to pay attention. When the doctor says, your grandfather had a heart condition and your father has a heart condition and you are probably hardwired to have a heart condition, that gets your attention. And you start thinking about things like diet and rest and exercise because you know the path you may well be going. Jesus tells us when you find yourself plunging speedily towards a situation of difficulty and judgment, go ahead and respond now. Don't wait. Don't wait to be jailed. Don't wait to be fined. Go ahead before, as soon as you see the warning signs, respond to that conscience. Respond to that God-given sense of warning that you might pull your hand out of the fire. Jesus goes on and he he speaks to a second sort of way in which we're called and, and gifted, enabled to transformation, not simply of our fruit, but of the very root of our character. He calls us in verses 29 and 30, doesn't he, to what we could call protocols of prudence. He says there, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. There's a cost. And Jesus is saying that you've got to learn 
how to die so that you can learn how to live. You've got to learn what to put to death and what to pay up so that you can receive blessing and reward and hope and beauty. And there is a cost. He'll say later, take up your cross and follow me. And there's so many rightful things, so many appropriate opportunities that that means saying no to. Opportunities that can become the occasion and the instrument of our undoing. I gotta tell you, we don't live in a land that suggests that you pay the cost. Jesus in chapter seven here, we'll, we'll get to at the end of the sermon, is gonna suggest that you ought to, as you get into this, you ought to assess the cost so that you don't find yourself halfway through realizing what's really demanded. It's not just fine print, but that if you want to, if you want to be united to Christ, you take up your cross and follow him. You submit yourself, your very life, as we sometimes confess with the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, that in body and soul, in life and in death, we belong to our Heavenly Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means you gotta die in order to live. And some of us need to die to occasions and instruments where we find ourselves being led astray. Some of you need to die to your smartphone, lead you to distraction, or to pornography, leads you to taking your mind off of the people needed to be loved in front of you, and takes you to places that are all selfish and dehumanizing. And while it can be a tool for benefit, while it can be an instrument of efficiency, it can also take you to horrific, horrible places. And some of you need to count the cost and cut it off and throw it away some of us need to say no to other contexts where we find ourselves being worked up. I, I wish I could say it was all of us, but I can't. Some of us need to not watch cable news. Get you angry all the time. Because they're not simply there to convey the truth to you. They're there to make money off you and make money by getting people ticked off. And yes, you can learn truth occasionally there. But if you find that you're watching that and you're ingesting that, you're taking toxins in, you've got outrage building up, you need to cut it off and throw it away. And yes, there's a cost. And yes, it may not be delightful, but if there's a greater good, you give up your treasure that you might have the treasure hidden in the field. You learn how to die so that you can learn how to live. I don't know what else it might be for you, but... Jesus here calls us to take a real inventory, not just as individuals, but as a community and perhaps as community groups here, especially as we think about the rhythms and practices and contexts of our lives that are leading us toward inappropriate anger and inappropriate lust, the ways in which not we can flee the world, how could you ever manage that, but the ways in which we can flee occasions and instruments of our undoing. The way we can be wise as serpents as we seek to be a witness to the world and a light upon a hill. Jesus goes on though, he doesn't simply say that conscience is good. He doesn't simply say that you put aside things that might lead you astray. But third and most profoundly, he says, 
you need to remember. You need to remember that ultimately it's a matter of trusting the particular promises of your heavenly Father. And you may have noticed a theme this morning as we've already sung of our heavenly Father and as you'll find we do so in just a few moments. Matthew's account of the gospel is rich and full of language of the heavenly Father. It's notable beginning in telling the story, the the origins of Christ. It, It tells of these Long genealogies again and again, so-and-so whose father was so-and-so, and there's but one person whose father is not named in the same form, and that, of course, is Jesus, because his father is not an earthly human, but a heavenly father who becomes ours in and through him. And perhaps the most common word in the entire Sermon on the Mount is the name of Father. And at its very heart, we're given that great gospel promise that with Jesus, we can come and approach and name him, too, as our Father in heaven. And so we see this again and again and again. And you know, the thing is, we need not go out after the ways of our neighbors because we can trust the provision of our Father. I want to look at this example of anger. It seems to me that lust is always with us. There's always more that you can have. The desire is insatiable. But we seem to live in a time and a place, in a cultural space, that is marked by outrage. And oftentimes we focus on the big outrage out there, say cultural, political outrage, to avoid the small, fermenting outrage within our own lives, the anger that we hold within Jesus has a lot to say about anger. Jesus has a lot to say about God's fatherly promise and provision that leads us away from acting out and stewing in anger. I think, of course, of of what his brother James says in James 1, 19 and 20, where he says, know this, my beloved brothers, brothers and sisters in the family, know this, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, which is what we need. Anger seeks out after justice, but our justice, and James tells us our justice will never be enough. Our justice will never be fair. Our justice will never be full. Our anger at mistreatment will never match the justice that only God can provide. So how do we avoid going full-on vigilante and acting out in Wild West sort of style where when someone mistreats us or disappoints us, when someone doesn't measure up or when an occasion causes us frustration, we don't respond in anger and we don't lash out and we don't demean and we don't look down? I'm struck by the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 19. He's riffing there on... Jesus' Sermon on the Mount on verses that are yet to come later in this chapter where he's talking about uh, the one who hits you once, you turn the other cheek. The one who mistreats you, you give him a meal. He speaks of this remarkable non-retaliatory sort of love. And he offers this one statement. He gets it why we are so angry. And he addresses it with the promise of our Father. He says in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, 
never avenge yourselves. He's just been talking about people who are hitting you. This is not a, a happy utopia sort of description. Nonetheless, people are hitting you. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice, Paul does not say, and Jesus does not say, that injustice doesn't demand a response. That injustice is somehow not wrong. That's not the word here. Now, the Bible never demeans our sense that things are awry. The Bible, through the Psalms, gives us words so that we can lament, so that we can name our frustration before God, so that we don't have to lash out with it toward one another. The Bible isn't stoic. The Bible isn't delusional. The Bible doesn't somehow suggest that everything you see and experience, all the disappointment within, all the frustration at your family, all the anger at work or lack thereof, all the fear about what's going on in our world, that that's wrong or illusory. Now, the Bible says that's legitimate and that's real because we live in a fallen place and we are fallen persons. But that the call of love, the call to die that we might all live is a call that we direct that unto God and his promise. Vengeance is his. He doesn't say there won't be vengeance. And justice is his. He doesn't say that we could ever seek to live apart from justice. But it's not ours. You remember that story, of course, in the movie and the book before it, A Time to Kill, of a, a black man in Mississippi, in a very rural town, whose daughter was abused horrifically and raped, left for dead by two white men. And as the men were arrested and brought to be arraigned for trial, he knew, knowing the town and the place, that they would never be convicted. And sensing that there would be no justice, he did what seemed only logical to him. He got a gun, and he took care of business. And there's something deep and profound about the dynamic there. Anger and outrage, unhinged, flowed from a lack of trust that there would be justice. Because we as humans are made to desire justice and peace and harmony. And of course, he realized that wasn't going to happen in that time and place. But we're told by Paul, we're told by Jesus that our Heavenly Father is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're told by Jesus that he cares for us far more than he cares for the sparrows and the lilies of the field, and you see how they are arrayed. We are told, as we've sung this morning, that he was willing at great cost to give up his own son that we might have justice, that we might be united to him and experience peace and blessing. That particular promise is what directs us away from allowing anger to well up within us. And, and we oftentimes, we pat ourselves on the back like the scribes and the Pharisees. We say, perhaps I've not murdered someone. 
I've not lashed out. I haven't somehow caused a scene, but we allow it to stew within. It's like relational moral constipation. And toxins within cause a lot of trouble and a lot of social awkwardness. And they don't make life doable. Jesus doesn't want to address the whitewashing of tombs. He wants to call us to the transformation of our whole selves. And he doesn't just say you, you simply believe that God is your father and somehow that abstract statement under, underdoes all the temptations of anger and outrage. No, in the gospel, he always takes us to a particular promise because temptation is always very specific. You don't fall prey to the luring of sin with a capital S. You're ticked off at that person or you're drawn to that thing. And God knows, having made us, that we will not fight and fend off particular lurings with abstract ideas. And so the gospel doesn't stay at 30,000 feet, but it comes in a very particular form that your heavenly Father here will provide justice so that you don't have to go vigilante style, so that you don't have to stew, so that you can lament it before him and you can move on in love. You can die to your desire to bring about justice on your own. And you can live in his promise that he'll bring it to pass. So what we see here is that fundamentally, the same Jesus who wants to transform everything always wants to root that in deep and profound trust in the particular promises of the God of the gospel, our heavenly father. The one who is so powerful as to have brought about this remarkable genealogy, this story through the centuries of a small nomadic people who somehow survived amidst all circumstances so that a Messiah might be given. A God whose plan couldn't be defeated by the Egypts and the Assyrias of old. And a God whose love and affection is so specific and particular that he describes knowing the hairs on our heads and providing for every bit of daily bread. We need to remember, of course, that saving faith, faith in the gospel, is not simply faith for judgment day. And so when the Westminster Confession, for example, defines saving faith, it, it says not only that, that saving authentic Christian faith in Jesus looks to God for our eternal provision, but also for daily provision, for that daily desire for justice for sustenance, for direction, for encouragement and hope. And that's right where we fight the battle. That's right where we face the temptation of anger and outrage, of lust and of insatiable desire, isn't it? It's in the daily wanting. It's in the daily sensing of need and of lack. It's in the, the daily encounter of that which seems to provide such relief or such joy. And God doesn't simply say, look away from that and look to an eternity long, far away, in a land far, far away. No, God also says, pray for daily bread. Pray for daily provision. Pray that the particular promises of my heavenly Father might be, be manifest to you in your life this day, beloved. Pray that the same God who's provided the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation would provide manna for the journey 
brothers and sisters, that we wouldn't be led astray to chase after the, the crumbs of other tables, that we wouldn't be led away to gorge ourselves on the debaucherous, debilitating patterns of this world, that we would know how to die to our evil hopes, our small hopes, that we might live to the blessedness of heaven and joy with God forever. Jesus calls for transformation by the gospel of everything, not just the world and the city, but the self too. And Jesus calls not simply for transformation of the self on the outside, but that every nook and cranny of you, every fiber of your being would be transformed by God's glorious grace and your heavenly Father's provision that you might, like him, take on the characteristics of being loving, of being a peacemaker, not being angry and outraged. Let's pray and ask that God would work those promises deep into our hearts, that we might desire them and trust him for them. Father, we do thank you. We know that the Jesus who said this was one who was misperceived and forgotten, abandoned by friend and killed by foe. And so it's no small thing when he tells us to turn the other cheek. And it's a call to die that we might live taking up our cross and following him into the way of the resurrecting God. And that's a, a weighty call. And we confess that often we allow anger to fester and outrage to grow. We confess that oftentimes we toy with the lusts and desires of this world asking like Augustine of old that you'd make us holy but not yet. We confess all that for you know it and we pray that you change us. We pray that the love of our heavenly Father would transform us within, giving us such peace and assurance, such hope and confidence in you, not in ourselves, that we would turn with one another with open hands to embrace and love and care for others, even at great cost to ourselves. And that in so doing, we would be a city on a hill and a light pointing to your way and your provision and who you are, that we might witness well to the God who so richly provides. For it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.